Let me just give you a little bit of context. Um, the, uh, we've read this letter to a church in Corinth in Greece, busy multicultural church in a city, lots of different groups of people, and we've addressed various questions and issues that Paul uh, is answering this church, and also that Paul uh, wants to raise with them because he's heard some reports that uh, are questionable about how they're living as a church. So we've looked at those along the way, and I'm not going to go back over those. This is the last substantive, the last meaty chapter. Um, it's not the last chapter, but chapter 16 just has uh, a lot of kind of smaller stuff, closing off information. So Paul, in this chapter, is tackling the question of um, resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and it starts from uh, a rumor that he's heard, it would seem, or in the church, or that there are some people in the church uh, who are suggesting, who are casting doubt on the reality of resurrection, uh, and they're not uh, taking seriously the foundation stone of the gospel, which is uh, Christ's resurrection. And so he takes issue with them uh, on that, and uh, he does that just by uh, he puts this matter at the end of the letter, hopefully because it's the one, you know, it's always, if someone asks you a string of questions in an interview, the one that you answer will be the last question that was just asked. Uh, generally, the last thing that you just heard is the thing that you respond to first. It's like if somebody sends you a text with a bunch of things in it, the chances are you're going to deal with the last thing that came in the text first, uh, unless you're really methodical. And so Paul wants the impact to be hanging in the air when this letter is read out loud to the church, that actually the climactic statement is, guys, do not lose sight of the resurrection, because if you lose that, you've lost everything. There's no other reason for us to be together. We have nothing else binding us together. So he's um, affirming the evidence for the resurrection the witnesses to the resurrection, the danger of uh, abandoning faith in the resurrection, the logical implications of not holding to the resurrection, because if there's no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then why are we all here? What have we got? Nothing. And, and so he rolls it back and says, if you go down that road, here's the logical conclusion, that actually we're all uh, in our sins without hope, without redemption, and we're just wasting our time here. Uh, and then he, but then he goes on to say, uh, but of course, Jesus has been raised from the dead and describes him as the first fruits. And we'll come back to that thought today. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that, that beautiful metaphor for dying in Christ, which simply says that we've fallen asleep in Christ. Uh, but it's only a temporary thing until we'll be awakened to resurrection life. Uh, and then he describes the sequence of events, how Jesus will come and then all his people with him, and then Jesus will destroy all other dominion and power that is opposed to him, his reign, his kingdom, the will of God, everything that is opposed to him that seems so big and tyrannical in our world and in our lives will be destroyed and put under Jesus' feet, and then Jesus will be made subject to the Father. And so everything will be brought to perfect unity and reconciled uh, within, within Jesus, within the living God. Okay, so that's uh, his assertion 
about resurrection. That's his uh, description of what Jesus, uh, what's going to happen. And now he goes on, and what we're going to focus on this week is, well, what's resurrection like? (laughs) What kind of bodies? You know, what's the experience and the reality of it for those who are in Jesus? Uh, What will our experience be, and what do we have to look forward to? So that's the passage that we're going to focus on today. We're going to begin at verse 35 and read up to 58 at the end of the chapter. Let's hear God's word to us today. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow... You do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. And so we move then from this consideration of uh, resurrection as, a, as, a, as a, a reality that was witnessed for Jesus, Re- uh, resurrection as, a, as, a, as an anchor, a foundation of the gospel that we've received and believed, a description of, of the sequence, if you like, of Jesus' return. But what is it like? There isn't one of us here who hasn't speculated with that question. And maybe the conclusion of it has been for you at times in the past a fearful one. What happens when we die? We certainly all shared that anxiety or concern about somebody else that we've loved and and wondering, well, well, where are they now and, and, and what happens? What is the experience like of dying? And And I'm not going to be able to give you concrete answers because God doesn't give us concrete answers in terms of the experience of dying. Except that he uses, as I said, this lovely metaphor, this image of falling asleep. Jesus prayed a prayer that kids, Jewish kids, were taught to pray every night before they went to bed, before they went to sleep, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And so Jesus prayed a good night bedtime prayer on the cross, where he said to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Night, night. (laughs) And it was night. And yet in that night, Jesus entered into the jaws of death and broke them and broke free the power of death to hold mortality and perishable things captive. And so, this next section begins with a question, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And obviously, when Paul goes on to say how foolish, he understands that the thought that has led to that question is a foolish thought. Well, what might a foolish thought be? Because it doesn't seem like a foolish question. How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? Well, that's an entirely reasonable question. Why is that a foolish question? Except that Paul perhaps knows that the questioner is asking in a kind of mocking Well, how can a body that's gone into the ground and rotten and rotted there and decomposed and become skeletal remains, how can that live again? Is this some kind of zombie apocalypse that, you know, we're imagining as resurrection? Some moldering bodies that now have life about them but are utterly distasteful. And so Paul says, how foolish, what a stupid thought. We will get new bodies. Do you want a chair? (laughs) We will get new bodies. And Paul invites them to expand their imagination and their understanding of what God intends. And he uses as his, excuse me, he uses as his image, his picture, his metaphor, a seed. Now, We all understand that that, that seeds, as tiny as they are, 
uh, yield an entire plant, a crop, and each seed has the DNA, it has the, 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 the imprint in the seed of what it's supposed to do. Never ceased to amaze me when I had time and opportunity to do gardening. It just used to fascinate me that you would put this crumb in the earth, you know, and then and leaves would come out, and then, you know, maybe a carrot or leeks, or they all know what they're supposed to do. Like they've all, you know, they've all got their instructions hardwired, written on, and they all know what they're supposed to do. Fair enough, but the plant that comes out bears absolutely zero re- resemblance to the seed that went in. I seem to remember that carrot seeds are very small, very flat, slightly yellow, just a tiny, tiny, tiny little circle. Looks nothing like a carrot plant. And that's his image, that's his metaphor, that who you are and what you look like will bear little resemblance to what you will look like. Resurrection involves the radical change that belongs to a seed that's planted and emerges as something that looks entirely different. Now, I don't imagine it means for one second that we won't look human or humanoid. But what evidence do we have for the change and the transformation? What evidence do we have for what we may look like? Well, we have the evidence of Jesus Himself, of course. There are glimpses given us in Scripture of the radical change that is involved, not just in resurrection and the change on the being changed part, but also in the part that that reveals what a spiritual body is like. When Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, we're told that He was transfigured. He was changed there in their sight, and His clothes, clothes gleamed like lightning or whiter than anyone could bleach them. He was transfigured before them, and, and there was an otherworldly radiance about Him, and, and the veil, the division between uh, time and eternity and heaven and earth was torn apart, and there were Moses and Elijah. And so somehow the the kind of time continuum that we're bound by and used to and thinking was no longer relevant. And that the physical appearance of Jesus had an otherworldly quality about it that they were privileged to glimpse. So if you like, there, there was a little glimpse of a spiritual body, a drawing aside of the curtain, a drawing aside of the curtain on Jesus of His glorified future, if you like, just before He came down from that mountain and began the journey to the cross. Now, no doubt seeing that made Peter, James, and John imagine all the more that Jesus, the Messiah, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey was indefatigable. But actually, it was a picture of what would be. But the way to that was the way of the cross, a way that reeked of broken physical suffering and humanity and cruelty and death, from the height to the depth. And they witnessed the brutal earthly reality 
of Jesus' suffering and the cross and everything that they did to him, all the way to death itself. Because the way to that glorified future and permanence was through the cross and the tomb. And radical change marked Jesus' resurrection appearances. I was having an argument with a friend of mine in here the other day, and we were debating how many of Jesus' resurrection appearances Jesus was physically recognizable to his disciples. And my friend Phil said he thought, no, there are just as many resurrection appearances where where Jesus... um, uh, was recognizable by sight as there were where he wasn't recognizable. I said, rubbish. And I went back and checked, and I've actually shifted my position. In fact, I've shifted my position further away from Phil than I was before. None of them. I think there's evidence that says when Jesus was raised from death to life, there was not a single occasion where they were absolutely sure by sight alone that it was Jesus. Now, you might take issue with me and disagree, and we can have that conversation afterwards. First off, in John's gospel, we have Mary thinking Jesus was the gardener. Now, yes, you could say her eyes were filled with tears, but when my eyes are filled with tears, it doesn't stop me from recognizing people I know. It doesn't blind me entirely. And so, Mary did not recognize Jesus. Aha, you see, Jesus appeared in the room that night and showed them his hands and his side. Yes, why did he have to show them his hands and his side? If Jesus just appeared in the room as Jesus and was immediately and instantly recognizable, what was the need for showing them his hands and his side? They'd already seen the wounds, except as identification markers, and Thomas got the same ones a week later. Of course, the best-known example are the two disciples on the Emmaus Road who did not know that it was Jesus until He, in the breaking of bread, was revealed to them. And then there's Matthew 28, the Great Commission. They went to the mountain, and it says, and they worshipped Him, but some doubted. You're there with Jesus on a mountain. What is there to doubt And then Jesus, of course, with his disciples in the, in the Galilee, at the Sea of Galilee, where he uh, stood on the shore and said, friends, haven't you caught any fish? And they didn't realize that it was Jesus. Well, fair enough. You could say there was distance involved. Maybe they needed glasses. But when they sat at that picnic breakfast with them, John tells us none of them dared ask him who he was. They knew it was the Lord. If you're sitting in close proximity with somebody that you've spent three years with, why do you need to say none of them dared ask him who he was? So it seems to me that on every single occasion, Jesus needed to give them a little bit of extra help to know and to believe that it was actually really him. Now, I'm interested in the conversation if I've got that wrong, but the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that Jesus was utterly changed to greater or lesser degree, and they did not see or recognize who He was. You will be changed. Now, I don't know whether my experience or your experience will mean that I will die, 
and that I will, I will fall asleep, as it says? Will my experience be that, that there will just be a, a period of time where I will just be unconscious, comatose? I've never had major surgery. I'm not planning on it, but none of us has that choice necessarily. But my understanding is that, you know, because I'm a minister, I've talked to enough people who have had surgery to know that the last thing they remember was the anesthetist telling them to count from 10 to 1 or 1 to 10 or whatever it is, and they got to 3, and that was it. And the next thing they knew, they were coming around in the recovery room. And so there's a lump of hours or days, and, and you know, if they needed to be intubated or, or in ICU or, or whatever for a while, there's a whole period of time that they have no knowledge of whatsoever, and they go from counting 1 to 10 to the moment that someone is telling them to, to wake up and calling their name. So I have no problem at all with the, with the dual concept of falling asleep in Christ, but the experience being that of going straight to the next bit. But I don't know. Because obviously we have people's near-death experiences to take account of where people talk about having died and come back to life and the experience that they had of being in the presence of Jesus and seeing and hearing and experiencing amazing things. All we know is that either we will fall asleep and be raised, to, uh, be raised in Jesus or that we will still be here when he comes back. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 4 of his first letter to the church in Thessalonica and says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you what we, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. There's the trumpet that Paul refers to in his letter to the Corinthians. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Who was it said that they wanted flying? Flying's part of the deal, it seems. And so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever. New bodies. Hallelujah. And we should be excited about these new bodies. We don't know what they will look like. We don't know what they will be like. But we know that they will be different because that which was mortal and perishable and weak will be clothed with the imperishable, will be made glorious, will be powerful, and will be spiritual. I don't know what a spiritual body will be like. But you know, I think we see glimpses of it. We see glimpses of it in the ministry of Jesus. Did Adam and Eve have spiritual bodies before the fall? Because I think they possibly and probably did. 
See, my understanding is that this whole massive meta-narrative story from, from creation to redemption is a story of God trying to bring things back to where they were. You will not surely die, said the serpent. And no, they didn't die there on the spot, that's true, but death came in. I remember once um, reading that bit, you know, when we were in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were kept from re-entering the Garden of Eden by a, a, a seraphim with a, or, you know, I think it's a seraphim with a flashing sword. Now, the Garden of Eden is, broadly speaking, somewhere in Iran or Iraq, unless the Tigris and Euphrates rivers have been massively rerouted. Broadly speaking, that's the part of the world we're talking about. So, why can't you go and see a seraphim with a flashing sword guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden? Now, that will depend on your understanding of the narrative of Garden of Eden. But you see, I wonder... I wonder if at the point where sin came in and people fell, whether we were once spiritual beings, completely unified and fused in body, mind, and spirit with the knowledge and the reality and the fullness of God the Spirit. And when death came in, the spiritual died. That unbroken communion with God died. That's the bit that died. And so the relationship was no longer that unbroken, shame-free, naked existence in a garden that would just yield its crops and the work would be light and childbirth would be pain-free. And there was a reality to their existence which was lost. And we've been living that reality this lumpen, earthbound, physical, brutal reality that we know as its life and existence. And actually, God's great plan is to reconnect, to restore, and re-infuse utterly and entirely, which is why Paul talks about us moving from having unspiritual bodies to spiritual bodies. What is a spiritual body? Jesus modeled a spiritual body in some respects, although within the limits of the earthly life that he had come to live. Jesus thought nothing of taking five loaves and two fish, and they became enough for a crowd of 5,000. Jesus thought nothing of standing on water and it not consuming him. Jesus thought nothing of standing up in a boat and saying, peace be still in the waves and the wind. You see, there was a complete fusion of earth and spirit, of matter and supernatural matter. See, I don't understand arguments that try to explain away miracles, because miracles, of course, they don't operate within the natural order of things. That's why they're miracles. But apart from that, if there's a dimension to our existence, and there's physics graduates in here, so I have to be really careful what I say. But if there's a dimension to our world that actually is above and beyond anything that we can empirically test or know by science, because it's out with the realm of physics or chemistry or biology, 
because it's a spiritual reality. It's a whole set of laws and realities that are other <laughs> and have been disconnected. Miracle's not a problem. And Jesus came to reintegrate the spiritual with the material. Which is why when Paul talks about us having new bodies, dispel any notes of float any ideas of, of being some kind of vapid spirit floating on a, on a cloud. We're talking flesh and blood reality as Jesus was. They could touch him, but he appeared in the room without them opening a door. And so a reality that is both solid and physical and material and yet has this other extra dimension that is not blocked or hindered by the physics of our world. There's a fullness. There's a, there's a, there's a being. There's, there's an extra, or extra layers of being fully human that are promised us. And Jesus came to bring about the restoration and the reintegration that you might have a new body. And when Jesus obeyed and came and obeyed all the way to break the power, the stranglehold, you know, it's a bit like that. Every science fiction film has got one somewhere. You know, there's, there's, there's some kind of, there's some core center that you've got to get through. If we can just get through there, we just have to blast the hole. And if we can get to the epicenter, then we can destroy the whole universe. There's always a central thing, right? Destroy that and everything else cascades out from it. Yeah? Do you know what the central thing is? It's death. It's death. You will not surely die, said the serpent. And death caused the spiritual fullness of the humanness that God intended and created for you and me to die. Which is why Jesus came and when Nicodemus asked him in dead of night about being, about heaven, Jesus said, unless you are born again, and then talked about the wind blowing where it wills, about being born of flesh and the spirit, a physical body and a spiritual body. You see, saying yes to Jesus, believing and receiving his resurrection power is entering into what he, as the first fruits, the second Adam, has come to break that the first Adam cursed us with, to break the power of death, to make it possible for you to receive the Spirit of God who will claim you, hold you, and seal you till Jesus comes again, and then the fullness of your new spiritual body and who you will be in Christ will be revealed for all eternity. Death, where is your sting? Mortality will be clothed with immortality. The perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. The weak will be clothed with glory. The unspiritual will be clothed with the spiritual. That's what Jesus has in mind for you. That you will be fully restored and reintegrated to the full spiritual humanness 
in every dimension that Jesus intends and intended for you. And so when we think about heaven, I don't know what you think about. But heaven is a new heavens and a new earth with solid places and streets, but a place where there is no money, a place where there is no greed, a place where there is no selfishness or power struggle, a place where there is no addiction or weaponry, a place where there is no longer any death or mourning or crying or pain or shame or disappointment or loneliness or all of the things that plague your lives and my life and the world around us. Jesus came to restore you to a place where you might live free of all of this, its burden and its struggle, a place where love will be perfect And, and that's why Jesus said something that no doubt, you know, some people still despair over, that there'll be no marriage in heaven. It's an earthly arrangement. Why? Not because there won't be special loving relationships, but because every single relationship will be a relationship of love, of trust. So there'll be no room or place. You know, every old person. Well, I've met many old people in my time as a minister. And it just tends to be, particularly if dementia or Alzheimer's sets in, that, you know, very elderly people often want mummy. <laughs> they want mum. They may be 92 and have lived a full and adult uh, life with children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, may be incredibly accomplished, may have done all sorts of wonderful things, but at the end of the day, they want mummy. And that can be difficult for children whose parents no longer recognize them or, you know, it's just the way the mind works and breaks down, sadly. But do you think heaven will be a place where we choose between parents or children? <laughs> do you think heaven will be a place where we prioritize some relationships over others so that people are left out, disappointed, or lonely? I don't think so. See, I think we have to shift to a place that isn't disappointing but a place where actually the quality of love is universal. The strength and intensity of love is overwhelming. The beauty and the reality of what we see and experience with all our senses will be absolutely unbelievable. No death or mourning or crying or pain. No more disappointment or painful memories. No fear or mistrust, no hiding or secrecy or shame. No anger, no frustration, no pride, no ambition, no selfishness, no loneliness or insecurity. See, even if I ruled the world, I wouldn't be able to come with all of that. <laughs> but that's your invitation, my dear friends. That's what Jesus broke death to do to restore you to your fullness, to give to you a quality of being and of life and of living that you just cannot conceive of now, to break utterly the curse of death that binds us into all of these negatives. 
And so that when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, the saying that is written will come true. Drum roll, please. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Get. Because the gift and the promise of Jesus is life. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So hold out in your faith in resurrection, says Jesus. Whatever this world, sentenced and burdened and wearied by all of its brokenness and death, and the stench of death expresses itself on every side, Jesus has something better, and he's proved it. Let's pray together. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But you've revealed it by your Spirit. So as we hear and receive what you've revealed by your Spirit, we say yes and amen to all your promises, to all that Jesus faithfully, obediently, patiently came within the limitations of our lumpen, earthbound existence in order to forge a path to the epicenter of our enemy and break its jaws and be raised to life, that he, the firstfruits, might bring that beautiful, reintegrated, spiritual humanness into the presence of God as the firstfruits of many that will follow our lives are husks that will fall to the ground. But you promise us glorious things and a beautiful experience. Lord, I pray for any single individual here who has not yet given their life to Jesus in faith that they might do that. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us if we, overwhelmed by what we see and know of this world, and its stench of death, or in pain, or doubt, or trouble, or discomfort, or dis-ease. And I pray that we may know a new power and assurance of your Spirit in all that you've prepared for us. And may the glory be yours as you finally bring all things together in complete agreement and reconciliation and restoration. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so we pray for this world that you will call many to believe beyond what we see. And we pray for it within its limitations that the powers and the rulers and the authorities will, within the limits of their blindness and their limited understanding, work from a heart of compassion for those who are the poorest in our society. Lord, there is much that might concern and grieve us in what we see. Help us to lift up our eyes and our hearts in faith so that we might know we have a good news story to tell. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And if that's you, you're that person who's not sure if you're a Christian yet, not sure if you've entered into 
the promise that Jesus died to offer you, then have a chat with me or someone around your table if you'd like to do that. But please don't go away uh, from here. If you know that there's a step you still need to take in affirming and declaring your faith, and we have a prayer ministry team here who will be happy to pray with and for you. And if you float around near the back, folks will get to you. But we're going to worship just now just to draw this time to a close and just to turn what we've heard from God's Word, I hope, into praise.